From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. On August 2nd, voters in Kansas came out in droves to protect abortion access in the state through a ballot measure. It was the first opportunity for voters to cast their support for abortion access since the overturn of Roe v. Wade. For many, Kansas was proof in the pudding. Americans overwhelmingly support reproductive rights. This November, a slew of other states have ballot measures that will similarly allow the people to decide if abortion will be protected in their state. In Michigan, the measure was only just recently added to the ballot after 750,000 people signed a petition to ensure that Michiganders would have a choice to protect abortion access in their state constitution. To protect abortion access in a post-Roe reality, we need to pursue every avenue possible, including at the ballot box. So today we're speaking with Rachel Sweet, campaign manager for Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, who led the ballot measure to a sweeping victory for reproductive rights. And also Connie Cross, a retiree turned repro rights champion who volunteers for Reproductive Freedom for All, the ballot measure campaign in Michigan. These two have rolled up their sleeves and recruited their friends, family, and neighbors to do the same. They are not turning back. And neither are we. My name is Rachel Sweet. I was the campaign manager of Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, which was the vote no campaign on Kansas's anti-abortion ballot measure in August. And I am now the campaign manager for Protect Kentucky Access, which is a coalition working to defeat a similar ballot measure in Kentucky. So one down, another to go. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Well, I want to start by first congratulating you on a huge win in Kansas. Uh, I know I'm not alone in saying that seeing this victory gave me a lot of hope in an otherwise very dark time. Um, What was it like for you to see this amendment to prohibit abortion in Kansas get struck down by voters? Well, thank you so much. I have heard a lot of people say that, that Kansas gave them a bit of hope, which I think we all need. Um, in these in these trying times. So I was I just really appreciate that. Um, it was it was kind of amazing to see the resounding rejection of this constitutional amendment by the voters of Kansas. You know, this was a campaign that was really years in the making. Uh, legislators in Kansas put this measure on the ballot, um, you know, obviously for the 2022 election, but that you know, passed in 2021, right? That was a a legislatively referred amendment. So we had been working on this campaign for a long time and it had been this like really and sometimes very arduous effort. And we knew that the race was winnable, but I don't think any of us anticipated the margin uh, that we saw on August 2nd. It felt truly uh, just kind of unbelievable at the time. And when you first sought out to work to stop this amendment from passing, right, did you have any sense that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned? I think we all kind of knew that was a possibility. But I also think that before the Dobbs decision, I think there was the consensus was not necessarily that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. You know, we, we you can't count on 
a national watershed moment happening six weeks before your election. So we planned as if we would have some sort of middling decision and we would have to just keep, you know, working the plan that we decided on from the outset. What changed um, with the Dobbs decision? Did you actually notice a material difference in the work that you were doing? I don't think our campaign changed that much. But what did change on the ground was really we saw a, a huge groundswell of support, both in terms of, you know, small dollar fundraising online, volunteers, people showing up to canvases. We also, I think, saw a lot more national media attention to the race, uh, but it certainly wasn't a campaign that like started six weeks before election day, which is, I think, how a lot of the national press sort of portrayed it. Like, oh, there's this thing happening in Kansas and it's... It happened overnight. Right. It's like, no, this is this has been happening for a year at this point. Um, but yeah, for, for people in the state and I think really people across the country, it that was a wake-up call, right? That that moment, June 24th, was a big wake-up call for a lot of people. Well, and Kansas was the first opportunity for all of us to see how voters would respond to the Dobbs decision. Um, and I think that that added some level of deep significance uh, or hopefully forecasting for what we'll see in the midterms. How did you find yourself in this position, Rachel? That's a great question. So I used to work for um, the Planned Parenthood affiliate in Kansas. Planned Parenthood Great Plains. I was our lobbyist and basically political director for a few years. Um, I've always been involved with politics in both Missouri and Kansas throughout my career. Um, so when we started really building the infrastructure that would be Kansans for constitutional freedom, I was kind of leading that effort because I was the person that was that was there to do it, right? Um, we're talking about a lot of awesome organizations that were part of that campaign, but not a lot that have a great deal of staff. Um, so I was kind of the point person for setting up the campaign infrastructure. And in February, of this year, I decided to leave Planned Parenthood to manage the race full time. And yeah, I haven't looked back since. It's uh, It was probably one of the best decisions that I ever made. And I'm really glad that the coalition like wanted me to step in and lead that campaign in a, a more direct way. Well, it's clear that you are very good at what you do. Um, and we are all grateful for that. I want to talk about the makeup of Kansas, because I think that part of the surprise was that Kansas is a, a place where, you know, Trump led by 15 points in the 2020 election. People who don't live in Kansas see it as a deeply conservative state. And usually, not always, but usually that aligns with uh, folks being more likely to be anti-abortion. And so looking at this landscape, when you were setting out to figure out how you're going to recruit people to strike down this am amendment, by the way, an amendment that was put on a primary ballot when there already was pretty low vo voter turnout in general for a primary for a midterm election, um, that's kind of like the worst possible place to put something very important if you want a lot of people to see it. What did that do to your strategy? Yeah, we definitely knew that the deck was stacked against us from the beginning and that that was intentional, right? The state legislature got to decide when they put this thing on the ballot and putting it on an August primary in a midterm year was intentional. 
Republicans in Kansas have a two to one registration advantage over Democrats. So it is a somewhat concerning. significant. Yeah, it's a, yeah. And that's a significant difference. Um, but the second largest group of voters in the state are those who are unaffiliated. So they don't belong to any political party. And typically those folks never vote in primaries, right? Because they're not part of a political party, a, right? Yeah, and they, party. they can't. Right. Um, so that was, those were just some of the structural challenges that we were dealing with. But I think that, you know, we knew from the outset that, you know, this is not a partisan issue. I know that it often becomes that in the discourse. And there are definitely, you know, as far as our elected officials are concerned, there are certainly lines, um, you know, between what party supports access to legal abortion and what doesn't. I think we all know that. Um, But for just regular people, this isn't a partisan issue. Uh, We saw from the outset that we were able to retain and persuade a lot of Republican voters who do think that abortion should be legal. And I think we really built a campaign around making sure that we retained and persuaded those voters. Um, you know, my our whole theory of the case is really that a ballot measure is not about changing hearts and minds. Um, I don't need, we don't need everyone in the state of Kansas or in any other state to feel the exact same way about abortion. But what we do need them to do is to agree to keep abortion safe and legal for the people who do need it. And I think that's what we were able to accomplish in Kansas. And again, we also saw a lot of those unaffiliated voters and a lot of um, more progressive leaning voters. We also worked to make sure those folks turned out. And clearly they did um, based on the margin that we saw on August 2nd. And I know that you were likely leading a lot of the strategy and perhaps less engaged in like one-on-one conversations. But I do wonder what that messaging was when you were door knocking. What kind of conversations were people having about abortion on the ground? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So yeah, unfortunately, when you are the campaign manager, you don't get to go knock a ton of doors. Um, But did have a lot of conversations with our volunteers and people that were showing up to Canvas they were having conversations about like, why are these, why are people taking more time on the doors that you would expect, right? Why are we only getting to X number of voters in a shift when it should be more? And it's because people really want to talk about this issue. Because <laughs> when you actually get somebody that wants to like engage with you, there are so many people that have a personal story that is related to abortion or somehow adjacent to this issue, whether it's, you know, their wife having a, you know, a miscarriage or traumatic pregnancy, or it's somebody's grandmother who had an abortion before Roe versus Wade. Um, yeah, there. this is something that people just bring a lot of personal experience and baggage to. And it is not um, as quick and dirty as just like talking about a candidate and doing your stump speech and walking away. Like there are, you can end up having some really in-depth, meaningful conversations with people because This is an issue that for so long, I think, has been seen as something that is really stigmatized that we don't talk about, that we're told in the shadows. Yeah, that we're told not to talk about. And so when you give people an opportunity to talk about it, they will talk to you. So you wrapped up Kansas, you just moved to Kentucky, and you're you're doing a very similar thing there. Um, Can you tell us about what you're doing in Kentucky now? For sure. So um, yeah, I just, I moved to Louisville on Sunday and I am uh, joining the Protect Kentucky Access team as their campaign manager. Kentucky is dealing with a very similar ballot measure to the one that we just defeated in Kansas. Um, it is, you know, 
And so it's a bit simpler in its language, maybe a little less confusing, but would have the exact same impact, you know, really changing the state constitution to say that there is no right to abortion in Kentucky. And Kentucky is a state that is in a, a different position than Kansas, right? Kansas, we had a state Supreme Court decision that had found this really broad right to personal autonomy that included the right to abortion. And, you know, Kansas was is very much viewed as like a, a in some ways, a haven state for abortion access, right? In the sea of states that are in Kentucky, um, there are currently two really extreme anti-abortion laws that are in effect. Uh, Kentucky has a six-week abortion ban and a trigger law. So currently, abortion is not legal or accessible in Kentucky. What's really at stake here is that if we say that there is no state constitutional right to abortion in Kentucky, there is no way to, to continue challenging those laws. There is no path forward to restore access. And I think the juxtaposition between these two races really shows that there are going to need to be different strategies and paths for how we either protect or restore abortion rights and access post row. This has to be a 50 state strategy. And I think that, you know, what's going on in Kentucky is about sort of how do we get back what we've lost versus like, how do we protect the good things that we have? Right. Like we have to get Kentucky back to a point where abortion we is even can again. talk about it. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. I mean, that is a really different story. What did you learn from Kansas that you are applying to Kentucky, knowing that they're very different states with very different kinds of ballot measures from a perspective of like where they're coming from? Um, are there any things that you feel like, hey, this was really valuable to me and my experience and our success in Kansas, and now I can use it here? Certainly. Yeah. There are a lot of lessons that I think we can learn from what happened in Kansas. The first is really that, you know, one of the strengths of the Kansas campaign was that we did have this really broad and diverse coalition, and we were able to use the talent and the time of these awesome partners on the ground to really scale all of our voter contact work in a way that I don't think would be possible with the staff that we had at the time and the staff that we have in Kentucky now. So that is something we are definitely working to replicate. We have had so many organizations in Kentucky raise their hands and join the team. And I'm just really looking forward to like working with those folks. I also think that doing that is honestly a better use of resources than trying to sort of stand up like a, you know, candidate, you know, like a state party, like coordinated campaign type infrastructure where you hire a bunch of organizers for a few months and then let them go because this actually helps build power and build capacity within the organizations that are already doing the work on the ground. And that is going to pay dividends down the road because we know there's always, you know, another fight around the corner. There's always more. Exactly. Right. There's always more. So I think that's definitely a lesson. And I think the other thing is just there are always disagreements, I think, within any sort of progressive movement about like what the strategy is, what the messaging should be, things like that. Um, really basing everything in research is always kind of our North Star. Like we spend the money and time that we do doing research, doing focus groups, talking to voters, developing a message. And we have to stick to that and be disciplined because again, Neither Kansas nor Kentucky are states that are, you know, what I would call abortion positive, right? These are states where there are a lot of people with these really conflicting attitudes around abortion. But 
post row, I think there really is this opportunity and in some ways an obligation to bring people into the fold that have those conflicting opinions because they're ultimately on our side, right? They are really concerned and scared by what, you know, conservative elected officials are doing when it comes to abortion. These extreme bans, bans with no exceptions, those are really out of step with mainstream values. And I think we have an opportunity here to be a place where those those voters can land and feel comfortable, but we can't necessarily, you know, ask them to adopt every attitude that we have about abortion, right? We have to create a space for them. And it's going to take a while. I think about the fact that like the anti-abortion movement really started organizing in a huge way in the early 90s. And now 30 years later, we're seeing the result of that, right? I don't know it's going to take 30 years to get a, back to what was a like a row status quo on abortion, but it's going to take some time. And I think we have to be cognizant of that fact. Kansas was a defensive fight, right? We did not have a choice. We had to build a campaign. We knew we had to win. Um, but I do think we need to like, be, yeah, we need to start thinking about what can we do offensively and just be patient with the fact that some of this stuff is going to take some time to rebuild. But I know just personally, like, I want to be a part of that because I think there is no state that should ever be written off as too red or too hard. We can win everywhere. And I think we have an obligation to try. We all have an obligation to try to pry open abortion access everywhere we can. We can win in states where it is unlikely, just as Rachel said. But only if we try. Every single one of us can show up. And I can't think of a better example of that than Connie Cross, a retiree living in Holland, Michigan, a conservative community on the state's west side. When Roe was overturned, Connie went back to work. I spoke to her shortly after Michigan's ballot initiative petitions were accepted, and the measure was approved to appear on the ballot in November. My name is Connie Cross, and I'm a retired public health nurse who worked in um, a Title X family planning clinic in Ottawa County and volunteered for Reproductive Freedom for All um, campaign after my retirement. I want to just start by congratulating you on the huge win in Michigan. There was a little bit of tumult that we'll get into, but You guys rallied and got over 750,000 petition signatures to get reproductive freedom on the ballot in Michigan. How does it feel knowing that you're going to see that in November? It's a big relief now. um, Like you said, we're going to get into some of the things that happened, but it was, you know, it was up and down for a while and I don't know, while we were collecting the signatures, we all felt really optimistic. And, you know, it it was kind of like we didn't know the numbers throughout the whole campaign till closer towards the end. So we just felt like we were making a difference and that we were getting enough signatures. So and then when we did get enough signatures and then when the Board of Canvassers voted it down and it had to go to the Supreme Court, that was another, you know, kind of a gut punch. Um, so it was, it was been kind of a roller coaster ride. You referenced that the Board of State Canvassers, which is the board that has to approve the uh, Constitution Amendment for the November 2022 ballot in Michigan, 
just approved the ballot measure. But there was a lot of tension because originally the Board of State Canvassers denied the ballot measure because of some spacing in a few lines on the verbiage of the written ballot measure. Is that correct? Correct. Seems pretty silly. Uh, It was a deadlock along partisan lines, Mm -hmm. uh, which feels very, you know, I think we can all read into the fact that if people were getting upset over some line spacing, it probably had not a lot to do with line spacing. I want to dig into the process by which you, Connie Cross, got involved. What happened? Where where were you when you found out that Roe v. Wade had been overturned? What were you feeling? And how did that lead you to the Reproductive Freedom for All ballot measure initiative in Michigan? Um, Well, after my retirement, I stayed on as a um, community member for the Family Planning Advisory Council for the state of Michigan. So I've been kind of following, um, I have been following a lot of reproductive health issues through that committee. And just, you know, out of my own interest of reading articles and things, I, you know, I knew that that decision was looming before that June date. So I'd been doing some reading and I had already um, contacted Reproductive Freedom for All in May and, and they had started the petition campaign very slowly. So I asked for a couple petitions. I thought, oh, I can get 20 signatures. That'll be easy. I know, you know, co-workers and friends and family. And then it just, I don't know, it just snowballed. Um, I just like, oh, two petitions isn't going to do it. And then, so then I started kind of mobilized. I added some events along with some of the pride festivals and we had a big turnout for people to come out and sign. So it just kept growing and growing. And, and then I was asked to do some of the data entry by the ACLU because, you know, they there wasn't that many volunteer leaders on this side of the state. We live in a very conservative County. Ottawa County is very conservative red County. And so there weren't a lot of volunteers over here. So I, you know, I, I just, it just kept, I don't, I don't know. It just kept getting more and more where I felt the need that I, okay, I need to do this. I want to do this. I want to help here because I just didn't want to sit and watch this all happen. And then once the decision dropped, it really snowballed. I had um, a couple events set up for the day after the um, decision dropped. And I went to bed at nine o'clock and in the morning I had 22 more volunteers that signed up for that day's event. So, you know, that's how it kind of started, just a small, like, oh, I can get a few signatures. And then it's like, oh, no, this, I need to do a lot more than that. (laughs) So for me, that's how I started. Why this issue? I mean, you said that you worked in the family planning clinic for many years. What about abortion access is compelling and important to you? Um, I just, I really feel strongly that abortion care is health care. Um, the clinic that I ran for Ottawa County, um, that I was the nurse supervisor, we were funded by Title X funds, which is the grant for family planning services. And the, the premise of that um, whole program is really education and giving, um, you know, people the tools to make the decisions for their reproductive life plan. And everyone should have the decision to make choices about their 
health and their reproductive health. It's not like your heart is a separate part of your body. Your reproductive health system is part of your body and you should be able to make decisions with your physician. I think that's a really great way of saying it. So you mentioned that you live in a very conservative part of Michigan. Mm -hmm. How did it feel to start this conversation where you live? Um, were you nervous about getting involved in that? What did it look like to move into the community and start having these conversations? Well, I can say that I they were all positive. I never had anyone negatively attack us or of all the events we that we worked at and gathered signatures and even just from family and friends. I had so many people that sought us out to come out and sign the petition and tell us their story related to abortion. I mean, complete strangers came out where we were, where we had tables set up and they would tell me their abortion story and why this is so important to me. And it was just, just to see the number of people that came out and to try to find us specifically. Um, there was a group of women that held a rally um, the Monday after um, the decision dropped and it was in Holland. And we had over 1500 people march down the main street and into the park. And then we were set up with signatures. So just overwhelming in a positive way. And did you have any conversations with people who didn't agree or weren't sure? Well, I, you know, I talked to them about, you know, the fact that it that it is health care and there that everyone has the, the right to make those decisions with their physician and not have government in that decision. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I talked to my friends and I try to meet common ground with my friends, especially some of my friends and family. They, they want restrictions on, you know, okay, they want to know exactly what the viability is and they're, you know, but when you get into the fact that sometimes, you know, there's decisions that, you know, that threaten the, the mother's life, the, the baby is, you know, incompatible with life. You know, viability is not you know, what for whatever reason or a, a miscarriage that isn't a complete miscarriage, you know, and they, they would need a DNC. I mean, just it just prolongs health care in so many ways and actually could lead to more serious complications, um, you know, such as infection, things like that, if if things aren't taken care of when they need to be. I mean, and you and we've all started to hear doctors might have to say, well, you're not septic enough yet or you're not sick enough yet for me to to do this DNC. That to me is as a nurse is just unbelievable. And that's kind of where that I talk to my friends from that point of view. Like if this if you need this health care and you can't do it, you can't receive the health care you want because the government has restrictions on that. It, you know, it's it's just not right. So, and that's how I talk to friends about it. Because you can be Republican or more conservative and be pro-choice. Yes, right. Yes, it's a it's it's not technically a partisan issue. <laughs> how many? Did you do you actually know how many signatures your work led to for the ballot initiative? I have. I was kind of keeping tabs, and then at the end, everything was just get petitions in, don't interim and stuff. So I had a little tally. And I, you know, from my group, I think there was about 2,000 with that. 
That's really impressive. And how how long did you have to get those signatures from the moment that you did you say you were starting to collect them before the overturn of Roe v. Wade? Yes, they had. Or, yes, um, ACLU and and um, Reproductive Freedom for All and Planned Parenthood had kind of like in May started. Um, you know, had obviously got the petition together and I was able, you know, I, I don't know, I signed up and got two petitions. They came from Detroit from the ACLU in the mail. You know, after that, you know, we just went up to Grand Rapids, which is close, and we'd pick up hundreds of petitions at a time. <laughs> it just seems so, you know, at the beginning, how to get it going. I would, even when I got the first couple of petitions, I would ask other organizations in Ottawa County, like even the Democratic Party, do you know anything about this ballot initiative or this petition? And they didn't know anything, you know, so it was so in the beginning, there really wasn't anybody to ask questions other than, you know, the trainings we'd get from the ACLU and the support from them. But just nobody really knew about it. (laughs) And so you became pseudo in charge of disseminating all this information, I imagine. I tried. Simply by even just asking questions. Yeah, it's kind of just like being at the that place at that time. You know, it wasn't the wrong place at the wrong time, but it it just heated up so quickly, and it would you just got swept up in the you know like you really needed to the momentum of the whole thing. It was just something really neat to be involved with and see, and see how far you know how the progress that we made and and what what we accomplished. Have you been involved in any kind of political? organizing work before? Very little. I Since I worked for um, county government, it was it was kind of frowned upon to, you know, be politically involved in any way. Um, so I I wasn't when I was employed and I worked for the county for 30 years. Um, and I really hadn't really thought too much about it. And, and then I, this issue really was one that really motivated me to get get more involved. And drag my husband and my friends, <laughs> too. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all it takes, right? It's like one person just having a spark in them and bringing their friends and family along I just keep, for the ride. I'm telling you, you can't complain if you don't get out there and, you know, it's not just vote anymore. I mean, it's that's just not that's not enough. <laughs> it's like if you believe in something and that, you know, that you like this proposal, then you really have to be involved and, and get out there and tell people, you know, and your friends and family, because they're they trust. I'm hoping my friends and family trust me than a straight more than they would a stranger. So it's just getting feeling comfortable talking to people about the issues. And. How did that come for you? Was that something that you that got easier as you continued on in this effort to gather signatures? Or was that something that was always kind of came naturally to you to talk to your friends and family about politics? I'd say it's gotten a little bit better as I've moved on. It's still not easy for me. You know, I I don't know. I, it's, it's just hard for me to when I, I have family and friends that are, that probably won't vote for this. <laughs> and so it's harder for me to talk to them. We all do, Connie. <laughs> so, we all have family and friends. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes I feel like I can talk to complete strangers and tell them how I feel. But then when you have to, you know, when you talk to somebody that's, a, you know, a good friend or family and that has, 
you know, opposite beliefs on this issue than you, then that's hard. That's really hard to do. A lot of people believe that of other things to come where we're going to more rights may be taken away, especially in the field that I worked in, reproductive health, family planning. You know, they have, you know, they've said that, you know, birth control could be next, you know, same-sex marriage. You know, all of these things are on the line. It's like abortion is healthcare. They're they're ready to take this healthcare away from you. What's next? So it's almost like uh, as uncomfortable as you feel, I, I don't know, you somehow just need to try to find your voice and, and tell people how you believe, because once these rights are taken away, it's a lot harder to get them back than it is to keep them. <laughs> That's certainly true. And I think that we're living that right now. Your boots on the gr- are on the ground because of us having these rights taken away from us. So, you know, you're like, don't, don't make me go out there more. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to retire. I wanted to retire. (laughs) Ah, that, that actually is a really, that's very compelling, right? Like let Connie retire. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure that'll do. You know, I didn't, when I retired in 2018, I really thought, you know, family planning, it's, it's pretty stable, you know, nothing too much going on. The funding, you know, gets cut like everything else, but, you know, we were still providing services. And then, you know, they dropped this decision. It's it's like, okay, if this, if they're going to take this, what's next? And I think that's what really motivated me. It's like, okay, if what, where's this going to stop? One of the things I think that makes you so effective as a messenger, Connie, is that, you even communicating with you today, it's very fact-based. It's very calm. It's very steeped in your experience. These are all things that I think can be helpful to people if they're looking to have conversations with friends and family or strangers about this issue. The ways in which you communicate something actually really does matter. And taking the temperature down, uh, I think, can help people feel more comfortable, have it be more accessible, and people are more likely to listen. Being involved this time has sparked another inner, you know, some energy that I didn't know I had anymore. I mean, I, being retired, looking for things to do, this definitely kept me busy over the months of the summer. It's like, where'd the summer go? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it did motivate me to continue to be involved in, in some ways. You know, I'll continue to stay involved with things political. That's great. I, we love We love to hear that. <laughs> Um, and I think that the country should just get better so that you could retire fully. Um, <laughs> then what would I do? my slogan, yeah. <laughs> let Connie yeah. retire. Um, Connie, thank you so, so much for talking with us today. It was so great to hear and I feel empowered just by listening to you. Well, so Thank you very much. And got to get everybody out to vote in November and... Vote yes. Vote yes on proposal three. All right. We will we'll make sure that all of our Michigan listeners hear that loud and clear. Thanks so much to Rachel Sweet and Connie Cross for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.